0: So, Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. And now that uh, Thanksgiving is done, the Christmas season begins. And if you love Christmas, I have some good news for you. Uh, The way things work out the most possible days between Thanksgiving and Christmas is 32. That's the way the calendar uh, works out. And so, if you're counting, we've hit that number this year so the christmas season is actually going to be six days longer this year than it was last year and if that's great for for some that's great for people like my daughter andrea who actually keeps a little tree in her room year round and probably like whoever clapped you haven't started your christmas shopping yet uh that's even better news uh And and, you know, it's funny, Is if you think that uh, we started to see Christmas decorations in the store at the end of October, it'll actually be two months of Christmas season by the time December 25th gets here. But as great as this is uh, for some, as Josh mentioned to you, I'm probably guessing that some of you uh, struggle through the Christmas season. And maybe that's even you. It probably wasn't always this way, but somehow through the years, what used to be a happy time of the season has become one that's become difficult. And maybe it's uh, the loss of someone that's close to you. Maybe it's uh, uh, something that's changed in your life, financial difficulties, an illness, or maybe even a, a relationship that's no longer there. And the memories of the Christmas season that used to have the highest of highs now brings you to these difficult lows as you remember what once was. And maybe it's not even the Christmas season per se. It could be even maybe the your job, the responsibilities of family, or maybe even just unrealized dreams. And as uh, as you... Josh mentioned we're beginning this new season, uh, series that's titled The Weary World Rejoices. And if you're, f- you're probably familiar with those words because they come from the, the traditional Christmas song, uh, O Holy Night. And uh, I'll spare you my singing, but <laughs> the words from the first stanza are A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn, fall on your knees, oh hear the angel voices, oh night divine, oh night, when Christ was born. This song sings about a drained and exhausted world that can now rejoice with the thrill of hope. There's something new breaking, there's a new and a glorious morning, and we see the reason for that in the last uh, line. Christ is born. Now, if you're not a Christian, this is quite a stretch. Religion is so often accused of being uh, disconnected from reality. Never mind, uh, you know, changing the world, the thoughts that that even your individual life could go from weary to rejoicing simply because Christ is born seems so detached from any kind of a practical solution uh, to your problems. And if you've ever had the chance and mentioned Jesus in front of someone, sometimes you get that kind of look like you're talking about the tooth fairy. They just don't see how or why any of that could even matter in their lives. The next time you're in a store, and you look around at all of the shoppers and you can hear the Christmas carols playing in the background, and the people probably know the words to most of the songs, but does it really mean anything to them, right? Does Christ being born, songs of Jesus being born are lumped into songs like uh, Santa and his sleigh and, and grandmothers being run over by reindeers, In And maybe that's you, even. Maybe these are just a bunch of religious words in a catchy tune that are all part of the Christmas tradition. But Jesus' birth doesn't really have any practical impact on your life. And my hope is that over the next few weeks that you're going to find that Jesus' birth into this world really can have a practical role and an impact in your life. I found this to be uh, true in my own life. The more I came to realize that Jesus was a, a real historical person and that he was who he said he was, the more it began to shape not only my faith but also the way that I lived my life. I found the answers to the worries in my life. It's something that I have to constantly remind myself, but I know where the answers are. And several times in in Jesus' ministry, he, he talked about the difficulties of life. He once said to the people, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He didn't teach 10 steps as to how to live a better life in order to lessen their weariness and their burdens. Instead, he said that he himself would lighten the burden of life, that he himself would provide rest for their souls. He made himself the focal point He didn't promise to show a better way. He said that he himself was the way and that by coming to him, the burdens and the heaviness of life would be replaced by rest. It sounds like like such an outrageous thing to say, doesn't it? But Jesus was different from all of the rabbis or the teachers in his time. The Jewish leaders who hated him once sent the temple guards to have him arrested, But the guards came back empty-handed, and when the leaders asked them why, they said, listen to their answer, they said, no man has ever spoken the way this man speaks. That was their answer for not arresting him. Matthew records that after hearing him teach, the crowds were amazed because he taught as one who had authority and not as their religious leaders. And when Jesus went to, his, to teach at the synagogue in his own town, it says that they were amazed. And they said, where did this man get his wisdom? What made him so different? Why were they so amazed at him? Because he said the things that no one else ever did. For example, look in John 14. Jesus said, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus claimed that his relationship with God was unique. Not only was he speaking and acting under the authority of God, but that he himself was equal with God. Jesus was at a feast in Jerusalem, and the Jewish leaders were pressing him, asking him if he was the Messiah. Because they wanted to, to arrest him. But he wouldn't answer them. Instead he said that those who listened to him followed those who listened to him and followed after him were given to him by God the Father. And then he said, I and the Father are one. And John says that they picked up stones and they wanted to stone him. And Jesus turned to them and said, He said, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? and listen to what they answered him. We are not stoning you for your good work, but for blasphemy, for you being a man, make yourself to be God. There was no mistaking what he was saying. Even his enemies recognized that Jesus claimed to be God. And so do you see why Jesus stands so far apart from any other religious leader? The eternal God, was born as an infant, he grew to be a man. God became one of us. Jesus was born into the religion of Judaism, a religion that strictly taught that there was only one God, and worshiping any other God was punishable by death. And yet he came into that society, and he convinced many of those Jews that he was God. And this is a historical fact. There were numbers of people who lived in first century Palestine who believed that Jesus was God. How does someone convince others that he's God? How does someone come in to a religious culture that has as its very first commandment, hear O Israel, the Lord our God is one, you shall have no other gods before me. How do you come into that culture and convince people that you're God? not a religious leader, not a great prophet, but God himself. He performed miracles, he told people that their sins were forgiven, and as we've seen here, even his enemies recognized this about him. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was much more than that. This is the argument that C.S. Lewis made in his book Mere Christianity. Some of you know this, but it's worth listening and hearing it again. Listen to what Lewis said. I'm, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great teacher. He never left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so, this is the person who was invited into the home of Martha and Mary. Tanya read that for us this morning. And as a background to the story, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, where in a short time he's going to be arrested and crucified. He's invited to stay at the home of Martha, who lives there with her sister Mary, and according to other gospel accounts, their brother Lazarus, the same Lazarus that Jesus would raise from the dead. The village of Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem, maybe a 40-minute walk. And by this time in, in Jesus' ministry, he's, he's hated by the Jewish leaders who are plotting how they're going to get rid of him. And Jerusalem, because it was a hornet's nest for these leaders, Jesus would teach in the temple by day, and then he would retreat to the village of Bethany at night, and it's believed that this is the home that he stayed at during his final week. And Luke tells us in the account this morning that he's, he's traveling with his disciples. So maybe it's more than just Jesus who's staying at the house. But he's an honored guest, and rightfully so. And so Martha is very busy preparing. And when you have guests, you know that the preparations are more than meals. And who the guest is makes a difference. And the impression here is that Martha is overdoing it. My grandmother used to have a term that she would say, putting on the dogs. I never understood what that meant. But she used it in a way as if to say that someone was going all out to put out their best. And that's exactly what uh, Martha is doing here. She wanted to honor Jesus with her very best. But her sister Mary was not so involved in the preparations. She takes a seat by the feet of Jesus, and she listens to him talk. She's captivated by his teachings. It's a rare moment. Away from the crowds and the the hostility of the religious leaders, they have the chance to have this intimate time with Jesus. And Mary doesn't want that chance to slip by. And it's not that Martha is not interested, uh, but her focus is on serving. It says that she was distracted by all of the preparations. The original language says tends to say that she was pulled away that she too would be sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him but the preparations were pulling her away. And it's not told to us what brings her to the boiling point. But again the original tends to suggest that Martha became irritated and she kind of bursts in on Jesus' teaching in like an explosive kind of a way, and she says, Lord, don't you care? Tell her to help me. The tone that she takes is almost almost scolding of Jesus, that somehow Jesus is keeping Mary uh, from helping out. Was she Was she flustered because things weren't going to be done in time, or maybe not as perfectly as she wanted? Was she envious, maybe, of Mary because she felt like she was missing out? It doesn't say. But Jesus answers her in a very consoling and reassuring way. And he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. She's worried and upset. There's a lot to be done and her concern that they won't, it won't all be done to the standard that she expects, and this anxiety is just building up inside of her until it explodes. And, and the truth is, aren't we all guilty of that at times? That something is bothering us inside, and if we don't, if we don't manage it right, it shows itself in a way that we eventually regret. And the sad thing is, is that a lot of times it's those people that are closest to us who become the victims of those uncontrolled outbursts. He tells her that she's worried and upset about all of the preparations, but really only a few things are needed. He says, in fact, just one, Mary has chosen the better, and it will not be taken from her. There's a lot that we could consider from the scene, but I think that what we see here is not a question of right or wrong. It's a question of better and better, Uh, better or best, or of priorities. Martha's priorities were focused on the material things, the cleanliness of the house, the accommodations, the meals. She loved and she honored Jesus and she wanted to serve him and it was her way of expressing her love and her reverence for him. But Mary's priorities are on the spiritual things, sitting and listening to Jesus. It was feeding her innermost self. It was feeding her spirit. And I think that some of you can relate to that, whether it's in a quiet time of prayer or Bible study sometimes just listening to a message. There's something that happens inside that's hard to put into words. You feel like like your inner self is being fed and touched. And it's hard to put into words, but it's a very real thing. You just have that sense that you have been in the presence of God. Listening to Jesus was not like listening to the teachings of the rabbis from the local synagogue. This was the chance for Mary to sit at the feet of God incarnate, the one who said that I and the Father are one. And Mary chose to put everything else aside to listen to him speak. Above all of the serving of the guests and so on, sitting at Jesus' feet was the right choice. When Jesus began his ministry, he called men to follow him. And these men would become his apostles. This was the way in the first century culture. Disciples were deeply committed to their rabbi or to their teacher. It was a lifelong committing of learning and following and imitating his way of life. And unlike, unlike our schools today where the professors meet with the students once or twice a week, These disciples lived with the rabbi. They traveled with him, they listened to his teachings, they they had discussions about those teachings. The disciples imitated their rabbi in every aspect of their life. If you have never read through the Gospels, maybe you've watched the series, uh, The Chosen, you would see how Jesus gathered this most improbable band of men who eventually changed the world. And it started when they began with that simple act of following him. These men would eventually be called to the highest level of service and sacrifice in God's kingdom. But it didn't start with service. It started when they followed him and they sat at his feet as he taught them. And this is what Jesus calls us to do. The highest priority for us is to sit at his feet and to learn from him. We may devote every every day of our lives in service to him, the highest priority, the starting and the finishing point of our discipleship is to sit in his presence and to learn from him. He is our master, he is our teacher, and we should always be at his feet learning. It's easy for us to let our Christian service become the priority, to become the main, the main reason why we're a Christian. And maybe it's not just Christian service. It could be that the, the entanglements of everyday life become our priority. But as important as these are, and they are important, the person of Jesus must always be the highest priority. The New Testament calls us to serve the poor, the widows, the orphans, the sick, but our motivating drive to do this, to have a heart that cares for those in need, must stem from that inner transformation that happens to us as followers of Christ. There are thousands and thousands of philanthropists across the world that are trying to serve many of the same needs that we as Christians serve, but their motivation is different from ours. We do these things because we want to serve and to please our master. We do these things because we want to be like our master. And the more that we sit at his feet, the more... We hear his teachings. The more that we follow after him, the more we become like him. In his letter to the Romans, Paul said that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And just as it was for his apostles, if we continue to follow him and to grow through his teachings, we will be transformed into the person that God wants us to be. It says that Jesus was amazed. It says that the people were amazed at Jesus because of he taught with authority. He could because he was the son of God, the creator of the universe. He had the authority and he had the power to back up his words. No one else could make the promises that Jesus made. If you find yourself overwhelmed, and weary. I want you to just hear Jesus's words from Luke 12 and I would like you to hear them as if Jesus is speaking directly to you. He said, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than the birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the flowers grow. Nor more will he clothe you, you of little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all these things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. These are promises from the creator of the universe. They're made to those who are Jesus' followers. No Old Testament prophet ever spoke as clearly and with such authority because no one else could. These are words spoken by the Son of God who came to this earth to reveal to us what otherwise could never be known. There are so many things in life for us to worry about. And in our worry, we end up becoming robbed of the joy and the peace of living. But Jesus tells us not to worry about our lives because our Heavenly Father cares for us. He sees us. He knows what we need. And He's promised to watch over and to provide for us, both in this life and in the life to come. And so let me ask you, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Do you allow the words of the Master to bring some comfort and assurance when you're worried about something that's going on in your life? Do you get some measure of peace? from the promises of Jesus' teachings, when things are totally out of your hands and no amount of effort on your part could fix it? Can you find comfort in knowing that God sees you and he watches over you? I have to tell you, I don't know how people can make it through life without that assurance to think that this world and this universe is all there is. God sent his son into human history and no one that has ever walked this earth has made a bigger impact on humankind than Jesus of Nazareth. And as Lewis said, don't say something foolish like he was a great teacher. He never made that an option. I want to just end where I started this morning with the song, O Holy Night, It was originally written in France back in the uh, mid-1800s by a man named Placide Capot. And because he was a poet, the local parish asked if he would write a, a, a Christmas poem for them. And so he did, he wrote what we now know as O Holy Night. The poem was put to music and it gained in popularity. But the irony is, is that even though he had written such an inspirational Christian hymn, Capot eventually became skeptical about religion and he walked away from his faith. He provided a great service to Christianity with this timeless hymn that no doubt has blessed people for many centuries. And yet, like Martha, there was one thing that was important and Capot missed it. He was busy in his service to his church, but he failed to know the one at whose feet he should have been sitting. All of his efforts to create this timeless hymn, all of his service to the local parish, efforts that have been recognized for ages, and yet he missed the single most important thing, sitting at the feet of the master and following him as a disciple. In the busyness of our lives, and even in our Christian service, we have to be careful never to let our priorities become out of order. Jesus said that one thing stands above all, to spend time with him and to follow him. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for Christ our Lord. Because of his birth, his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, our lives have meaning, eternal meaning. Thank you for your promises to watch over and to provide for us. Help us to believe, to truly believe, and to trust in your promises, that our lives would be transformed from lives of worry to lives of peace and rest because we trust that you watch over us. I ask that you would provide a special blessing for those who struggle during this season. May they be comforted in our Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to live lives that, that truly please you and glorify you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And everybody said amen.